God, let the things that we've confessed together in song be deeply true of us as a people. I pray that our community would see, indeed, how great you have been, and how great you are, and how great you have promised to be. We know that you are faithful to your promises because you have kept them. We love you, and we thank you for the time to gather this morning as a church family, and fellowship, and worship, and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. May be seated. If you would turn in your bulletins to the very middle section, well, that's the announcements. I guess the left side when you open that thing up. Uh, if you missed it earlier, I did remind about the hymn sing that is tonight at six. We're gonna break open some ice cream together first at 6 o'clock, and then sing through some hymns together using the hymnals that are tucked away. We're going to dust them off, bring them out. So we need some help right after the service, breaking down the the side of the the sanctuary to kind of set up tables and be ready for that. Uh, We would love to see you tonight at 6 for the hymn sing. Uh, Do want to point out that every Sunday we gather, we have a focus for prayer. Uh, This Sunday in particular, we're going to focus on our college ministry. Uh, and some of you may be thinking, well, it's too early. It's July. Uh, four weeks is not that much time between now and when the students will be back, uh, undergrads especially. Our graduate students will be back even sooner than that. Uh, we have pharmacy students and med students who are part of our, our church body, and we want to be mindful of the ways that we care for them. And so it's, it's certainly appropriate to even now begin praying about that and thinking about that. Um, I uh, am a graduate of Campbell twice over. I'm currently at uh, enrolled at Southeastern in a PhD program, but at my time at Campbell, uh, one person referred to me as a double hump camel because I have two degrees from there. Um, I uh, obviously love the community because I'm still here 16 years later. Um, there is something special about Bowie's Creek. Uh, many of you are from Bowie's Creek. The rest of you think Fuquay is more special, so whatever. But Bowie's Creek has an allure to it that is, is, is pretty great. And uh, there's a new president this year, the biggest incoming freshman class ever. Uh, it's it's pretty magical to see the things that are happening uh, because I didn't anticipate any of this when I was there uh, 10 years ago and 15 years ago. So uh, my wife and I met at Campbell. Uh, there are many of you who are connected to the Campbell community uh, in so many different ways. And so let's be in prayer for uh, those students who are studying there as they come back and as they come in the first place. Uh, a couple of the ways that we can practically do that and so make our prayers into action uh, are that first, well, second, second week of August, um, on the 15th is move-in day, so August 15th. Mark your calendars for that. Uh, we as a church will have an opportunity to kind of set up in a, a station on campus and help students through the course of about 8 to 12. Um, we're asking home groups to sign up for about an hour to kind of help and give us a, an idea of who can help. And then if you're not yet part of a home group, uh, feel free to be in touch with me and we can get you coordinated. But we would love to have hand trucks and strong backs and even just friendly faces because these are mommies dropping off their babies to college. It's, an, it's a momentous occasion, and so it's an opportunity to really be loving uh, and affirming and encouraging to parents as much as it is to the students. And so move-in day is a big deal. We want to encourage you to be a part of that on the 15th and pray for those relationships that will even be formed then. And then the following Tuesday of that week, there's a street fair at Campbell in which local businesses, uh, churches, campus ministries, um, campus clubs are all encouraged to have a table, give out information, 
They can give out something else if they want to. And so we have always, well, not always, but for the, our tradition now is to set up and, and make fresh-cut French fries. We've got three guys who will roll up with their deep fryers, and we cut those suckers and fry them up. And usually we've been right in proximity to Bojangles and Papa John's, and so you can get dinner at the street fair. Uh, but Campbell students wander through that fair from 6 to 8, uh, getting to know all the things in the community. And it's an opportunity for, again, for Grace Community to be present, uh, to, to have friendly faces engage with students and faculty and staff who walk around too. And so consider uh, helping out, just being present on that, uh, that Tuesday night, helping out by handing somebody some fries and then talking about why God is at work and what God is doing at Grace Community Church. Uh, and it's also an opportunity to meet a lot of the other uh, gospel-centered churches in the area, too. And so the street fair is a great time if you live in the Bush Creek area. I also want to make sure that we don't forget about our students who are at Wake Tech and CCCC, uh, and we want to pray for them as they gear up for the fall as well and have uh, classes that are just as intense as anything that a Campbell student is going to have. And we want to pray for all of those who are in that stage of life, um, that as we as a church body were just encouraged last week uh, to be intentionally integrating all ages into what we do together as a church family, uh, from the seniors to the babies and everybody in between. And so that's going to include college students as well, uh, of, of both undergrad and grad varieties. So with all those things on your mind, uh, let's spend a few moments in silence uh, and pray for uh, what God will lay on your heart. And then after a few moments, uh, I will close us in prayer. Uh, also note that the prayer requests that are on the bottom section of underneath that, um, those are things we keep updated. You can also see some of those updates on the city. Uh, but take this with you through the week and pray for your church family uh, through all the things that are going on. So let's be silent before the Lord and pray together. God, it is not often that we have an opportunity to be so silent. Because our lives are so busy and full. So forgive us. We know that you have said specifically to be still and know that you are God. So we thank you that as a church family we can do that for a few moments. We thank you for the opportunity that we have as a church to engage with uh, Campbell University. We recognize that the desires of administration is to move into an accepted liberal arts university, and they've left their Baptist roots in a lot of ways. And So we're grateful that we have the opportunity to be a gospel-centered presence. We thank you for our elders who are staff and faculty at Campbell. We thank you for uh, the families who work there, whose uh, lives are tied up there. We thank you for the students uh, that 
are a part of Grace Community Church that have, uh, have been students, that are students, are planning on being students at Campbell. We pray that in all these different kinds of relationships that we would be gospel-centered, we would trust Jesus daily, and we would speak of him and the people that we meet and in those relationships that we form. We pray especially for freshmen coming in that they would not be anxious for anything, but even in this, that they would lay all of their cares at your feet, that they would trust you, that you've provided for them and are leading them in this direction. We pray for the families that are leaving their children in Bowie's Creek, that they would trust that you are in control and that you know what you have planned for them. We pray for the med students and pharmacy students and nursing students, the, the graduate programs that continue to grow at Campbell. We thank you that there are so many, uh, in some cases, young families and these young adults who uh, have such drive to achieve, and I pray that they would rest in the achievements of Christ, even as they respond by uh, answering this call that you've placed on them to study hard. We thank you for all the college students that are a part of our church body that uh, are studying in whatever way. And God, we ask in, on their behalf that you would uh, give them renewed passion, renewed strength uh, to, to pursue these uh, classes, these degrees, these dreams that you have put in them that are achieved through, uh, through school. So that you might be glorified and they might find joy in doing what you've called them to do. And we also pray that you would take these things that we offer to you, uh, uh, these offerings and tithes, and, and, and build your kingdom uh, so that we might uh, continue to point to your goodness and point to your provision by giving hilariously because you've given everything that we need to us already. Now we have abundantly more than we need in Christ. So thank you for the opportunity to do that. We pray that you would continue to minister to us and through us as we worship together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This is an atypical Sunday. Um, A, because I'm wearing a tie. B, because uh, usually I'm not doing all the things that I'm doing this morning. Uh, Pastor Brad is on vacation. He's our teaching elder. Um, He is on a much-needed vacation. It's been a a very trying vacation. at least six months for them, if not more. Um, so we're grateful that they're able to escape. Um, I wish I could escape, but that's not, not to happen yet. Uh, and then I was scheduled to preach next week, uh, but then uh, when Ricky's uncle passed away, he had the opportunity to go to Birmingham with the family and actually participate in the funeral. And so we're grateful that Ricky was able to go. But that meant I had to kind of notch up the homework a little bit um, because I also had a paper due and some German work I've been doing. So just a heads up. Uh, if some German words slip into this, I apologize. Um, I'm going to try not to. But I'm, I'm glad that you're here. My name is David. Um, I'm creative arts director, and it's my privilege to, to serve in preaching this morning. So sometimes when I, when I actually sit still for long enough, I recognize that living in America is exhausting. I mean, seriously. We live in an achievement culture. For those of you who are in the workplace, you know this way more intimately than I do. And New York Times columnist uh, David Brooks provides some really interesting commentary on this cultural phenomenon, and it's really striking. Um, For instance, in 1950, uh, Gallup 
told high school seniors and asked if they were an important person? 12% said yes. Uh, In 2005, 80% said yes, we are important people. What what might the response be now, 10 years later? Uh, We have geared our kids to believe that the extraordinary, the superlative, the best, the important is normal. Everyone is special, and you've got to work harder than the next guy to maintain that, right? So how does this play out in the long run? (laughs) What does this look like over the course of a lifetime? Brooks suggests that our secular culture knows that eulogy virtues are more important than resume virtues, but we actually spend our time on resume virtues. We know that we can't take it with us, but we want to stack it up on our resume and have a nicer house than the neighbors in the meantime, right? Competition is so intense in some areas of life that there is really very little time uh, to actually sit still. You should be maintaining your yard, uh, making an impression at work, getting likes on Facebook, repins on Pinterest. You brand yourself, you market yourself. Does that leave any time for rest? For Sabbath? For just having an ordinary day? And popular media is great at reinforcing this in ways that we otherwise, we might not catch this uh, because we deserve the best because we're special people, right? Uh, We lift up celebrities as ideal, special people when they're actually pretty much as ordinary as we are, but culturally, uh, we've set them apart. And if we want to be happy, we should be like them. But keeping up with celebrity culture is impossible. Celebrities can't even do it. 50 Cent isn't even worth that right now. (laughs) So even keeping up with the other family in your neighborhood is exhausting. But this cultural achievement obsession, it actually affects our culture in the church too. Because we end up comparing our spiritual walk with uh, our neighbor or our friends. And we feel like, you know, maybe we should have more spiritual Facebook posts. Or, or maybe we should pray more and we could look like we have some more peace or something. Within church culture, the achievement or extraordinary thrust of pop culture causes us to lift up missionaries and full-time ministers as our own celebrities. And we get caught up in the lie that the only stuff that's worth something to God is the spiritual stuff that we do. So there are some days I, I come to worship exhausted. And not because we've got two toddlers and an infant to load up. It's sometimes because I've believed the rhetoric of American Christianity that I need to be living a radical, extraordinary, extreme, on fire, sold out, totes awesome, always extraordinary life for Jesus. But that's not the gospel. I've been crucified with Christ. And now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Not faith in my achievements. Because Jesus already accomplished for me what I could never do by trying to be good enough. And after he went to be with God the Father in heaven and prepare a place for us, he left the Holy Spirit to empower us to do things in response to his love for us, not to earn it. 
So here's where the Bible speaks directly to these cultural lies. We're not called to live uh, extraordinary, radicalized, extreme lifestyles as Christians. We're called to live in this world, but not love it, not be in love with it. We're called to live abundantly normal, mundane lives. So this morning, I specifically want to challenge the assumption that many of us hold that causes some of us a lot of guilt, that Jesus never put on us, that, that we must, by our own efforts, be extraordinary, radical people all the time, everywhere. I actually owe a great deal of insight uh, to Michael Horton's book, Ordinary, uh, in which he quotes from a recent blog post from a foreign missionary uh, and self-proclaimed radical follower of Jesus who returned to live an ordinary life in the States. So here's what she said about all these assumptions. She said, now I'm a 30-something with two kids living in a more or less ordinary life. And what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in a war-torn African village. (laughs) What I need courage for is the ordinary, the daily, everydayness of life. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. And then she continues, I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, Getting up and doing dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. So this is what I need now. The courage to face an ordinary day without despair. The bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life and the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me and that is enough. So that's an ordinary testimony of the power of the gospel. So Horton clarifies, thankfully, that ordinary does not mean mediocre. So embracing the ordinary is not a call to do less, but a call to invest in things uh, that we often give up on if we don't see immediate results. Uh, It's the eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. And what a sobering word. And that's an encouraging word that that she shares in the blog for for all the moms who know exactly how she feels. Uh, And hopefully now you're starting to think, okay, so what am I supposed to do? Uh, So this morning, we're going to look at Paul's letter uh, to the church at Colossae. When Paul wrote his letters to encourage pastors and elders in local churches, he wasn't necessarily writing to extreme, on-fire, sold-out, radical people. He was writing to ordinary people. The gospel is for ordinary people living normal lives. So with that encouragement in mind, let's look at the context of Colossians in order to get into our text for this morning. The context is the question is you know, who, when, why. And so the who is, is Paul addressing this letter to the local church at Colossae while he's imprisoned uh, in Ephesus. Uh, 
So this is probably written around the same time as the letters of Ephesians and Philemon, uh, which is in the mid to late 50s AD. So get your head around this, like 20 years after Christ has ascended and the church is blowing up around the Mediterranean. The most important question to ask, though, when you're digging into a book in the Bible is why? So why did God lead Paul to write this stuff to these people? Uh, It seems that in large part, when you look through it, that uh, Paul had never been to Colossae. He had not. A lot of the places that he writes to, he had actually been there on his missionary journeys, but this one he hadn't actually been to. And so it's possible that he hadn't had a chance to teach them directly about Jesus. And so he wrote this letter in order to address a false philosophy or worldview that had begun to affect the Colossian church. And so even though that's a specific reason for Paul to write to Colossae, that's a pretty specific reason for God to preserve that word for us right now. Because in every era, in every part of the world, the church, the people of God, will encounter false worldviews and a culture that operates on false premises. So sometimes a false worldview could be the, uh, the, the spiritual but not religious way of life. Because it's, it's a form of seeking God that isn't focused on Jesus necessarily. So in some areas today, like that's the trendy way to believe, to understand how the world works. There is a God, but we can only know him inwardly and subjectively. And sometimes the church, uh, new believers or young believers especially, are influenced more than they know by the spirit of the age. So this is in part why Paul responds to them with such timeless language about Jesus. Uh, We have read this passage many times Uh, But from Colossians 1, Jesus is not changed by the spirit of the age. And so Paul uses language that is elevated about him. And in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Paul says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Such a beautiful picture of Jesus. This letter is written to an ordinary group of believers, encouraging them to live in the reality of the gospel, the reality of who Jesus is and how he's reconciled us to God and what it means to live like this is actually true. So Brad, he actually set me up last week uh, when he started reading the scripture from Titus uh, because he mentioned the term chiasm or chiastic structure um, off the cuff when he was preaching from Titus. And so one of the things that I love about Pastor Brad is that he is always learning. Uh, He mentioned to me last week that he's so glad that me and Ricky are in our respective programs because because he gets to learn so much vicariously. I thought he was going to say he was proud of us or something, but uh, (laughs) Brad loves to learn. And so he's always asking us like what we're studying. And, and so we had a conversation about an aspect of interpreting the scripture in the New Testament that we both found really fascinating. Um, and so 
I'm going to back up a little bit. To, to do good interpretation, or hermeneutics is the proper like, school word, uh, to read the Bible deeply and well, what kind of things do you need to think about? Well, we talked about context. I mean, that's, that's a key part of it. And there are three contexts, actually, or, or groups of folks to remember when you're interpreting a passage from the Scripture. You've got to think about the author, the author's original intended audience, and then you, the reader. Because when you read, you're bringing all sorts of baggage to the table, and you've got to keep that in mind as you're interpreting the Scriptures. So we're going to practice that this morning as we unpack Colossians 4, 2 through 6, uh, specifically. So the author, the original author, is, is Paul. And Paul is writing in Greek. So some of you are already thinking, okay, whatever, we get this. Get to the good stuff. Okay, I, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, what about the King James English? Uh, unfortunately, this is not the original language. Uh, and Greek, when it's written, looks a lot differently than English. Uh, so for instance, on my PowerPoint and in my, in my manuscript I'm using, I've got you know, 21st century English that I can put in bold and italics and paragraph separation and punctuation. In Greek, there is none of that. So maybe you're wondering, what does this look like? So for you listening online, you're going to miss this. But here's an example uh, using some English. Uh, A sentence in English and a sentence how it would look in Greek. Some of you can actually read that pretty well because you're actually you're used to hashtags. Uh, so for, for our resident Facebook and Instagram and Twitter users, uh, they're used to reading giant run-on words that begin with the, with the tic-tac-toe symbol. And so actually, in our next sermon series, uh, just a heads up, we are going to look to try to do a hashtag that will fit with the next sermon series. We're going to preach out of Hebrews in the fall. So... Be prepared, social media folks. We're going to take advantage of you and and some hashtagging. But So how does a Greek writer then emphasize a point? If everything looks like that in one giant run-on, how does Paul make something stand out so you're going to notice it? So one tool in Greek is chiasm. So notice how this breaks down. Some of you may have thought about this in terms of understanding poetry in English. But in chiasm, it's, it's, it's thoughts that you're rhyming as opposed to the, uh, the phrases or the syllables. So you have A, B, C, C, B, A. Uh, this allows you to say something twice uh, with a pivot point in the middle. And the repetition also catches those who are only hearing. Because think about it, many of those in the first century, the first hearers of this, not everybody was literate. So they couldn't read the run-on Greek. They were only listening. So when you hear something twice, you're twice as likely to remember it, right? Yeah? How about that math? So what Brad and I found interesting, actually, is that all of Colossians, the whole book, the whole letter is a chiasm. Uh, you would need a whole lot more letters than just ABC to break it down, but, but it allows Paul to reiterate things, to shape them, and reiterate, make points. He can make bold, typeface statements to emphasize truth using chiasm. So Colossians 4, 2 through 6 falls toward the end of this chiasm, reiterating some points that are actually in chapter 2. So if you have a chance this week, read through Colossians and see if you can notice in English how those thoughts rhyme together through the course of the letter. But let's stand together um, as I read this text um, from Colossians 4.
Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So remember the Colossian believers, the original intended audience of this letter. They're ordinary people affected by the spirit of the age and a minority in their community. And that, that actually sounds like us as well. Ordinary believers wrestling with a culture that's constantly swayed by its passions in ways that we don't always understand and certainly can't always agree with and becoming a minority in our community. Now in Colossae, this was okay. <laughs> They'd never known the privilege of being the majority, of having political power, of having monetary wealth. So the word for us in this truth is that as the people of God, we've always been a minority globally, and that's okay. Throughout the history of the church, those who follow Jesus have been more frequently in the minority than the majority So what a privilege we have had in America in the last 200 years. But should we just presume on this privilege? Should we just take for granted what God has allowed for us? And should we now complain if the spirit of the age is merely becoming apparent? Our text directly answers this in in terms of our response to those outside the church family. So for the Colossians, Uh, The line between insider or follower of Jesus and outsider uh, was a lot less blurry. It was pretty evident if someone had never heard the name of Jesus before. But here and now, we're dealing with a much blurrier line, a much potentially more complicated context. Because so many people assume they know who Jesus is. They assume they're a Christian even for being born in the South. And if they don't know Jesus they haven't really been reshaped by the gospel, they may be on the outside, as it were. So Paul wants to equip the ordinary folks to engage with those who are outside. And this is his instruction to them. Verses two through four, they can actually be kind of understood as speaking to God about people. Continue in prayer. What... What does continuing in prayer imply? That they started in prayer. And any hope we have of living an abundant, ordinary life is tied to how we communicate with God. Any hope we have of engaging with lost people around us necessitates that we've already talked to God about what's going on in life. So we must be communicating with God before communicating with those outside. Otherwise, who would we be introducing them to? (laughs) An abstract concept of the divine? A deity who is unapproachable and far from us? We've been rescued by a God who made us sons and daughters and invites us to fellowship at his table, who is knowable through the person of Jesus. 
So talk to him like a person. When Paul says, uh, open doors, we, we recognize this phrase, right? We, we easily recognize the phrase, open doors, but I wonder how easily we actually recognize the open doors. It's a simple yet profound way to pray for one another. That's why Paul asks for it. Because all of us know people uh, who either haven't heard about Christ or haven't heard it clearly. And a simple, powerful way to pray for one another is to, to do this. Just to pray that ordinary people would, would encounter and recognize open doors. Because we run into open doors all the time. Well, not run into, but run through, I guess. We run through open doors all the time in the course of ordinary days. So pray also that we would just be aware of these opportunities that God puts before us. And then Paul uses this phrase, the mystery of Christ. The mystery of what's going on in the world has been revealed in Jesus. And so we should speak of this with simple clarity, right? Okay, there are still aspects of the gospel that are definitely mysterious. But the fact that death is defeated because Jesus is alive is worth proclaiming clearly and often, isn't it? So Paul builds on this idea of speaking clearly as he ought to in the next two verses, which uh, actually could be seen as speaking to people about God. So the first two are speaking to God about people, and now we're speaking to people about God. And so Paul says, walk in wisdom. Paul tells us in Galatians to walk in step with the Spirit in Galatians 5. And in that way, when you walk in step with the Spirit, you don't gratify your sinful nature, and instead you bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. So here we're to walk in wisdom. So Paul unpacks what that might mean in the following verse. But I want to I consider the phrase toward outsiders, though. Because as I mentioned, the lines are blurry here in the Bible Belt. I mean, nobody wants to be an outsider, and it's probably offensive uh, to some to even use that term. So part of walking in wisdom would be to know when and when not to use that kind of term, that kind of language. And if you're an, if you're an outsider this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're someone who's still considering Jesus, trying to get a sense of what church community is like, uh, we are humbled that you're here. And we, are, and we welcome you wholeheartedly. Because just as God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between us and him, now we want to tear down any walls that would keep us from fellowship in the gospel. So please uh, take the time to ask any of our elders uh, or the person who brought you or even the person sitting next to you, if, whoever they are, uh, about Jesus. But generally speaking, though, we're, we're going to encounter outsiders outside in the workplace, in our families, in our neighborhoods. So hear this. The reputation of the gospel is tied to the actions and words of believers. Not the power, mind you, but the reputation of the gospel is tied to the actions and words of believers. As much as we wish it were simply tied to Jesus and the scripture, there are people who may never read Jesus' words, but they hear what you say. They may never read the scripture, but they've read what you posted on Facebook. They may not be familiar with the gospel-centered grief, what it looks like, but they see how you mourn the death of your family. 
And this is where the phrase making the best use of the time comes into play. I love this phrase. But depending on your translation, it may, it may read uh, redeem the time. Make the best use of the time. Spend the time wisely. And it actually it would be so easy to use this phrase to induce guilt. Have you been making the best use of your time? What does that actually presume? (laughs) We have to understand what best use means first. And if we're driven by our culture's values, if we're driven by achievement culture, then the best use would be to spend our time achieving something measurable or to make the best use means uh, to have success of some sort because the culture's best use of time is that which causes immediate gratification. But God does not presume those things. God does not have those expectations for our time. But rather, he expects us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him and others. He expects us to love him with all that we are and love others as we love ourselves. And this is not a radical description That's a description of the ordinary Christian life. So here are a couple things that we get from this phrase in the context of this passage. Number one, the best use of the time is living out the greatest commandment and the second greatest in whatever circumstance you're in. That could be just going to lunch after the service and loving God and loving those that you're with. It could be And how you tell your boss that you need more hours as you love God and love your neighbor. It could be how you hug your neighbor who just found out they have cancer. The best use of your time is wrapped up in what Jesus has already simply clearly told us. And those are all open doors if you're ready to see them as such. And then number two, make the best use of the time you are in If you're constantly dreaming about what's next, caught up in the achievement culture, or you're hung up on what's come before, what's in your past, you can't make the best use of your time. You must be present in order to make the best use. And when you're present in the moment, you can actually see those open doors. So don't let anybody guilt you into thinking that the best use of the time is necessarily spent in radical extreme ways all the time. It's exhausting. This next phrase is, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Salty language. We have uh, different cultural connotations to that phrase, don't we? Um, This actually, in the Greek, this refers to wit, uh, to humor, and creativity. So Paul is literally telling people, hey, be winsome. Be interesting to talk to. Be engaging in conversation. That's what he's telling normal, average people. So what I love about this idea is, again, it assumes something. Because being creative and humorous in a conversation means that you know who you're talking to. When you really know somebody, you get their jokes. And you know how to make them laugh. So to make the best use of your time, having your language seasoned with salt, means get to know the people that you're talking to and be winsome, be humorous, be creative, be engaging. Because 
it's really pretty embarrassing. I try to be humorous and creative with somebody you just met, like on a first date, right? Uh, and, and really, few things are more awkward than saying something that should be hilarious and getting no response. There are many preachers who understand that one. Nobody who preaches here. And I love the phrase, answer each person. The seasoning of our language, the saltiness, it's, it's not on its own. It's, it's towards an end. It has a purpose. It's for the purpose of providing an answer to each person. So some translations actually say every person, but that's not the best translation. And frankly, that's overwhelming. <laughs> Trying to think of how I can answer every person that I might come across when I look at my calendar and consider my schedule, it's just way too much. But considering each individual that I encounter. That's more manageable. I can get my head around that. And clearly, this passage is intended to encourage our evangelism, our sharing of the gospel clearly when we have open doors. So I'm going to suggest that we have uh, two ways of thinking about evangelism for us ordinary folks. First, There is direct evangelism. And really, unless you're gifted by the Holy Spirit for evangelism, nonstop direct evangelism is exhausting. It is tiring. It is draining. Because in the New Testament, evangelism is listed as a gift of the Holy Spirit. So if the same power that raised Christ from the dead has gifted you to be direct in your evangelism, you've got a well that you can't dry. And you probably know somebody who's gifted like this. They're always leading conversations with unbelievers and and fearlessly asking, what do you think about Jesus? So praise God for those that he has gifted and put in the church body to encourage all of us in evangelism. The second way to consider our evangelism is in responsive evangelism. And every believer is equipped to respond. I believe that this, that this is making the best use of the time. When we engage in responsive evangelism uh, by responding with our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors to the things that in life that God allows. So David Brooks also provides some really helpful thoughts towards responsive evangelism. Because there's something that every person who lives, whether Christian or not, they will experience suffering. Everybody knows suffering to some degree or another. Even if they appear to have it all together, sometimes those folks have it worse than you'll ever know. So a way we can do responsive evangelism using that common denominator of suffering is in how we live through our own suffering, how we respond to suffering. So Piper has a book entitled Don't Waste Your Suffering. That's a great reminder. You can share the gospel with your family and your coworkers in how you suffer. Because our American achievement culture causes us to, you know, to aim for happiness because we have the right to be happy. It's actually the right to pursue happiness, but whatever. So we believe we have the right to be happy. And so we always aim for it. But really, really it's suffering that makes us who we are. 
not our happiness. Suffering outside of the gospel is dehumanizing and crushing. It's despair. But suffering with hope, it shapes you. So we can make the best use of the time by responding with hope and love to the ordinary suffering of our family and neighbors and coworkers. It's, it's ordinary in that everybody knows it. Suffering is not special in that sense. So there's some common experiences in the midst of suffering that we can respond to with the gospel. First, suffering shatters the illusion of self-mastery. <laughs> suffering is out of your control. And according to the gospel, that's okay. Because God is in control. Suffering teaches gratitude for, to anybody. I mean, you, you become thankful for the little things that sustain you. So how much more thankful are we in the gospel when our church family comes alongside us in suffering? How much more gratitude do we feel when we consider that Christ suffered for us? And lastly, people don't, they don't heal from suffering. They come out changed. People don't heal from suffering. They come out changed. And you can share the power of the gospel by letting the gospel change you in your suffering. There's another common denominator that allows for responsive evangelism because all people experience grace, whether common or special grace. Common grace is the fact that you know, God is gracious to all of us in providing food uh, by letting the rain and the sun do its work. God is gracious to us in so many little ways that are common to everybody. But God is especially gracious to his children when we've responded in faith and repentance. So you can talk about grace with somebody and you can actually talk about the things that you've received that you don't deserve. And people will understand this because almost everybody knows a measure of that. And then everyone is born with a moral imagination or, or a conscience, if you will. There's a hunger or a God-shaped hole, to quote Pascal, that that goes unarticulated, really, until you hear the gospel. The story of God gives context to this idea of good and evil, this hunger to know what's out there. Everybody has that hunger. So God might open a door for you to respond to somebody experiencing that longing. They just don't know what's going on. They don't know how to articulate it. So how are ordinary Christians to live? I think this text in Colossians speaks to our interaction with those outside. And Paul actually gives even more practical advice uh, for ordinary Christian living in Titus 3, which is actually the follow-up to what Brad preached last week. So as we close, please hear the word of the Lord and consider how you might rest in Jesus' finished work and respond with grace and salty speech to those who need to know Jesus and live an abundant, ordinary life in the gospel. From Titus 3, Paul says to Titus as he's preaching, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, 
to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us and righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Would you stand and pray with us? God, let your word sink deeply into our hearts. Let our thoughts be shaped, our emotions be shaped, and even our minds be shaped by the reality of the gospel. Thank you for seeking and saving the lost. And that was us. And thank you for continuing to seek and save the lost. And letting us be a part of that. Help us to see how we might do that even in our ordinary lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. You remain standing for the benediction. Jesus with all his saints. Go in peace and